Okay, um, so just thank you so much, Nicola, for joining us. I'm super excited uh, to do this interview with you. Um, so I'm just going to start by doing a territorial acknowledgement. Um, so I'm currently on the homelands of the Lokwankan speaking peoples and the Wissanic peoples, um, also known as the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. Um, and I'm really, really excited to be here today. Um, and one thing that I like to do in my territorial acknowledgements is talk a little bit about what's called a decolonial minute. And it's just talking a little bit about like my personal journey of decolonization and like what I have been learning. Um, so one thing that I thought was kind of cool to share is in my environmental science class right now, we're learning about um, the history of racism as connected to the food system. Um, and that's like something really like new for me that I was like, oh, this is like really interesting. It's, it's awful, <laughs> um, but it's really interesting to learn about that connection. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just been really, really cool. Um, so yeah, um, Madeline, would you, you mind to... if I uh, do yeah. a land acknowledgement as yeah, well? Totally. So I live on the lands of the Coquitlam, Katsi and Kukite First Nations, but I'm at the office right now. So I'm on the lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and uh, Swamish First Nations. And um, I, yeah, I think that's really neat that you have that sort of decolonization minute and um, I think I, I haven't really thought about how to you know, provide a, a land acknowledgement to that, but I think um, one of the things that I always try to do whenever it comes to Indigenous issues is make sure that I'm listening and it's not my place to um, tell Indigenous people how to live their lives. It's about listening to how we can do better and, and accommodate uh, them since we've stolen their lands. Yeah, for sure. Um, Madeline, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my name is Madeline, um, and I'm the director of communications for ELECTHER, um, and I'm a fourth year bio student at UVic. Um, and so I'm also, I would repeat the land acknowledgement, but uh, me and Emma Jane are in the, in the same place. Um, okay. And so my sort of minute would be, which uh, is always a little bit behind, I'm from Calgary originally. Um, okay. And so I was raised with a lot of anti-Indigenous sentiment um, in the environment around me. And so my learning journey is a little bit behind everybody else. <laughs> um, but so one of the things that sort of I've been learning about this week um, was sort of the phrasing. So saying um, indigenous people of Canada, not Canada's indigenous people. That was sort of the one that was brought to my attention this week. And I thought was a good sort of perspective shift um, that I'm going to try and work into my language and just sort of my frame of reference, but yeah, that was my piece. Awesome, thank you. Um, and so Nicola, the kind of the first question we have for you is just to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, my name is Nicola Sperling and I, uh, I guess that's a little bit of a loaded question because I've just sort of shifted everything that I'm doing and I do a lot of different things. So. I have spent a lot of time working in the construction industry, doing management, um, and then I've been doing a lot of volunteer work on the side with the Green Party on the political side of the spectrum, and then with multiple pride organizations. I founded Tri-Cities Pride, and, and I was on the board of Vancouver Pride. So I'm still involved with Tri-Cities Pride, and, and I work with them. And then um, 
I've also been uh, doing a lot of artwork. I started a number of businesses at the beginning of the year, so I'm still doing that. But when I did that, uh, the owner of the flag shop reached out to me, and that's where I am right now, and wanted to work together to um, allow me to do basically all of the things that I love doing, so art and helping to craft policy around um, well, inclusive policy and also uh, do a lot of activism work in the community because she really cares about giving back and that was what attracted me to go back to an employed position because I also had you know flexibility and which was part of what I was looking for and that's just opened a lot of doors and I'm also working with the um, trans health cooperative or Tavine and, and that's an organization that um, I'm still kind of getting familiar with everything that they're doing, but uh, that's something where I'm interested in working with them as well to create positive change. So I've sort of made the shift from my advocacy work being purely uh, outside of work to making it part of my work. And that to me is really exciting and, and I'm just sort of getting into all of that. And sort of where did your activism and advocacy journey sort of start? Like when was, was that has just always been part of your life? No, it really hasn't been part of my life. So uh, growing up, my parents listened to the radio a lot. So I, I understood issues that were happening, but I didn't really have a lot of desire to do anything. I think I was uh, super depressed for a long time and I uh, just had no motivation to really do anything with my life. So I didn't pay too much attention to, to advocacy work until I was 24. And I kind of, I got back into listening to the radio. I was really paying attention to politics at that point. And then I also had my uncles uh, that I met, I'm, I'm adopted. So I met my biological uncles, um, or I guess uncle and, and his partner. And um, they convinced me that I should volunteer with Vancouver Pride. So I showed up at my first event and they asked me what my pronouns were. And I guess I haven't mentioned this yet, I'm trans. So I, that's what sort of started me on the journey of discovering that I'm trans and, and transitioning. And as part of that, becoming involved with Pride, which is a political organization, I worked my way up under the board. So I was involved in political issues that way. And then the leader of the BC Green Party reached out to me based on, I, I suppose, the work that I've been doing with Pride to further trans rights and wanted me to run as a candidate. And, and that basically just launched me into everything. And in 2017, I was outed um, pretty publicly. So on a national level, people knew that I was trans and I went from being only out to friends to out to the world. And I figured, I mean, if I'm already out, I might as well start doing my, uh, start doing advocacy work for myself and sort of ramp that up because I could be more open about my lived experience. Awesome. Um, and then like with that experience, like I, I can imagine there was like a lot of different like feelings for you um, with that because obviously I can, I've never experienced it, but I can imagine it could be quite challenging in different ways. Um, can you speak a little bit about that or like how you felt or if you're comfortable with that? Like the challenges that I faced uh, in getting to where I am now or? Yeah, kind of like that. Like how, how like what are some of the challenges that you faced um, and like how have you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think there have been quite a few over the years. Obviously, the challenge before transitioning was just severe depression and not knowing what what I was doing and not feeling happy. So um, transitioning was was a big hurdle, obviously, but um, it really helped put me on 
on a good track, I think. And then um, it sort of started this sequence of events because as soon as I ran for politics, obviously I had the hurdle of being outed on a on national level. And basically I haven't had a job offer since that point in time. I found jobs through social media, but that's been because I have a bigger following from the election. So it's sort of um, mixed, you know, whether that's, that's in part a hurdle, but in part sort of this, this big benefit to my life. And I think that's the case with a lot of things that I've been through. And one of the hurdles that I went through was uh, running for municipal election and, and burning bridges with people over standing up for queer issues and um, things like that. And then um, I ran again this year and this um, or last year, last year uh, was just absolutely ridiculous. So in 2019, um, someone named Megan Murphy, who claims to be a feminist, um, sent all of her followers towards me and, and started harassing me. So that was sort of my first experience with hate. And that became sort of the running, uh, I guess, issue uh, that has presented itself and, and the hurdle that I've had to get over since then, because after Megan Murphy, then I guess there were enough uh, transphobes following me that when I made a comment about JK Rowling releasing a book and how we needed to be concerned about that because it was potentially going to be transphobic since, um, you know, she's, she's a known transphobe. And I said uh, that she was, uh, she couldn't be trusted around children, which I thought everyone knew what that meant. And I thought, you know, I've got so many trans people following me, people know what that means. Uh, and the transphobes tried to twist it, tag JK Rowling. So she threatened to sue me, which I thought was just absolutely wild that I would even be on a radar. And then uh, after that, it was constant harassment for months, like, multiple notifications a second. Uh, I just couldn't keep up. I put my phone away and just left it. And then um, that's kind of popped up since then. And uh, I had during the, the latest election near the end of last year, a series of um, or two main people harassing me and um, doxing me and, and things like that. So it, there's been quite a few hurdles over the years. And, and I mean, one of the big ones too was just in 2017, in the lead up to running, I had, I was recovering from surgery. I'd had just a couple months before and I just socially transitioned because I didn't socially transition until uh, quite a bit after I started on hormones. So um, trying to participate in an election where you're going door knocking and you're not used to, you don't know how people are gonna react to you. And also um, just, having to be so public and uh and all of that so yeah i would say quite a quite a few hurdles that have come up over the years yeah for sure and i the jk rowling thing i like saw that all over twitter it was like absolutely insane like i can't imagine like getting that much hate i was um running Amita Kuttner's Twitter account uh, during, (laughs) yeah, during that time. I might have messaged you that way. Yeah, probably. So I was, um, like, I wasn't, like, they were on it as well, but during that time, they started to get so much hate um, and transphobic comments um, for them running and all this stuff. Um, And so I was like, you can't have access to your Twitter. Oh, I'm gonna like feel all these because it was insane. We were getting so many, and I had to go through and like just because yeah, it was it was really it was really hard. Like I can't imagine for you like getting all of those. Like that must have been awful. Yeah, I mean at the beginning because that was uh, Amada and I started receiving hate uh, in the lead up to J.K. Rowling 
threatening to sue me. And obviously I'm gonna hate after that, but that was sort of how it started. And I mean, even at that point it was bad. So we were communicating with each other sort of in solidarity and and helping each other through that. So that was really nice. And, uh, and I'm really glad that uh, Amita announced so publicly that they're non-binary and um, I thought that was really neat to, to do and, and to use that platform. But also I thought they were really smart about it because um, they released all that at the beginning of the campaign so that it, you know by the end of the campaign, it stopped being as much of an issue. And with sort of that journey, how did you sort of keep the confidence to keep going back out there? Like to, uh, to do it again and... <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't really know. I know that a lot of my confidence at least started out as just a show and sort of a masquerade, especially since I was pretending to be someone that I wasn't for so long. So I just put on this front that I was a confident person when in fact I wasn't. But I think at this point I am truly confident because I've been through so much. I have a lot of faith in my abilities. And also I just work a lot on my mental health. I don't necessarily have supports in place but it's something I think about a lot and I'm always striving to be a better person whether that's you know in the activities that I do and, and trying to become better and better or whether that's just wanting to be the healthiest person I can and I'm not necessarily that healthy I've got a lot of negative coping mechanisms but um, one of the things that I learned over the last couple of years was how much I was speaking negatively about myself in my head so a lot of it was working on that and I think the biggest thing was recognizing when it was happening because it I was so used to it that it would just happen and I wouldn't really pick it out as, oh, you're not being very kind to yourself. And so I, I spent probably a year or two just thinking about that constantly until I got to the point where if I say anything even remotely negative about myself, I'll immediately say, stop, don't say that, you're awesome, and just have that conversation with myself. And that's really helped because now instead of doing a task and, and uh, feeling completely not confident with that. And, and that, you know, for instance, the 2017 election, getting in front of all those people, public speaking, uh, I wasn't comfortable with that, but you put on a brave face and you work on, um, on those things internally. And then after a while, I think you do it enough times that one, you become confident and also you become desensitized to certain things because in politics you have, so much back and forth so many people criticizing you and you can't really take it to heart that's what politics is um and also just when you're dealing with so much hate eventually it you just kind of blur it out like you stop reading the comments or you read them but they just don't have an impact on you which is probably sad that you get so much that you become desensitized to that but i mean i'm happy to be where i'm at where i don't have you know i don't feel negative about myself and um, and I am desensitized to that hate, so it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, and then like kind of with those conversations, um, there's so many different types of conversations and different interactions that you have in politics. And I'm really curious around like what you think there's conversations that we aren't having about like mm -hmm. equity in politics and like conversations you wish that we were having. Yeah, um, I think there are a number of issues that it, and it really depends on what we're talking about. So I think that the federal Green Party, for instance, which I'm not involved with very, very much, is uh, further behind the BCND or the BC Green Party in terms of 
social issues and how they're dealing with diversity within the party, for instance. I think they've recognized recently that it's an important issue and they're working towards it, but the Green Party in BC, I've seen them take action. I've seen them put forward really good policies. I've seen, because I'm on provincial council, the diversity and equity work that's going into finding diverse people to come on as candidates and diverse people to come on to provincial council and inform policy and having a youth council that provides us with a new perspective and allowing people into the party that are 16 and providing a youth spot on provincial council and youth council, all of this. And I think there's still a long ways to go. I mean, we were hoping to have all that work at least um, much further along by the time we had another election. So when that snap election was called, we were scrambling to find people. A lot of that work went out the window and, and that was really upsetting, but hopefully for the next election that's done. But I think some of the things that we're not focusing on enough in either of the parties um, are conversations around disabilities and accessibility and ableism. Um, that's a conversation that I've seen popping up more recently and, and I haven't seen it blow up the way some causes have. I know it's been a conversation for quite a while, but I don't think it gets enough attention, uh, especially when you consider that there's so many non-physical disabilities and, and mental health issues that need to be accommodated. And I think any of those invisible disabilities are really hard to get support for. Um, and there's not a lot of, I think, government supports for people, like if they're in the workplace and being discriminated against, things like that, obviously you can, um, you could go to a human rights tribunal, things like that, but it's it's really hard to prove when, you know, maybe you haven't had a very direct email back and forth with issues, or maybe, um, you know, your your um, mental health issues are invisible to whoever is is looking into that. So um, that's a big one. And then also some of the issues that I was really hoping the BCNDP would tackle when um, when the BC Greens were holding the balance of power because the BC Greens put forward a number of pieces of legislation that the BC NDP didn't push forward. And it, things like banning conversion therapy, we've gone two years without a ban on conversion therapy because the BC NDP chose to wait for the federal government. And we still don't have that legislation, but we could have had it two years ago in BC and that was really frustrating. All they had to do was vote yes. Um, also gendered language and documents we put forward um, uh, legislation to remove gendered language from like FOI requests and things like that, because it's not necessary. You don't want to, you know, uh, misgender people, things like that. And um, that also just wasn't brought forward. So I think that there are certain things, um, and obviously I'm more focused on the trans side of things. So I probably have more of an understanding of, of that side of things, but um, issues like that. And obviously there's going to be more and more that come up and there's so many that are really important that I don't think are being talked about enough, but they are being talked about. Um, things like Site C, um, LNG expansion, uh, the Wet'suwet'en raids, you know, and, and that was interesting when we did polling with the Green Party during the election, uh, we found out from people that most constituents didn't care about the Wet'suwet'en raids. And I found that concerning, especially since the protests were so big, people knew about it. Why don't more people care? And we, we talked about it nonetheless, but I know, you know, when, when, when you do polling, you find out your constituents don't care about Indigenous issues, then you as a party don't usually talk about Indigenous issues. And, and that's a problem. It's, I think, also part of the reason we need a lot more diversity in politics and diversity in, in regions that people can get elected in and diversity in um, just in, in 
informing the party, whether that's on provincial councils or, or consultants and things like that. And for someone who sort of like wanted to bring up those issues that aren't necessarily popular or being talked about, what advice would you give sort of to convince someone that that's mm -hmm. worth sort of fighting for? Um, I think it really depends on the person. I think if the person's not passionate enough about it, they're not going to be convinced. And if they are passionate about it, they probably don't need that much convincing. But that's simply to support the cause. I think what people need convincing to do is get out and volunteer if they're really passionate about a cause, because that's how everything that I do started. And that's still a lot of what I do is just volunteer work. You can rise to the level of being able to create change have amazing things to put on your resume, get amazing experiences if you're willing to volunteer. You can create so much change in the world just as an individual. I, you know, I, I see myself as being able to create more change than city councillors and MLAs in certain instances because you can put pressure on people. They're one of 87 votes or one of however many votes, but if you can be a loud enough voice in the community, you can make a party whip all of their votes into going a certain way or you can pressure councillors into voting a certain way and I think that's really effective um, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of volunteering to get to that level and I think also you can be passionate about a cause you can be willing to volunteer but the positions that you choose you want to be informed about because if you're on a board of directors if you're doing on-ground volunteer work things like that you're, you're pretty safe but when you start getting into the public eye more and you start taking on certain causes and you start becoming well-known enough that people push back against you, if you don't have a thick enough skin for that, then it's going to be really difficult. It's going to be really mentally challenging for you. And I think a lot of people don't realize that until they're too far into it and they've burnt out and, um, you know, they've, they've made a mistake or, or whatever it was, um, and then they have to drop out of, out of it. So um, pace yourself know what you can expect and don't push yourself too far, I think are my, my words of advice. Awesome. And then what would you like advice would you give to somebody who's like a young person who may want to try to reach a certain leadership role, but doesn't feel like they can see themselves in that role? Yeah. I mean, I would just say, go for it. If people don't think you're right for the role, they're not going to put you in the role. You can't just put yourself in a role, you, you, you know, you, unless it's you're doing something for yourself, in which case you do whatever you want. But um, if you want a role with an organization or you want to run for politics, you want to do anything like that, where you're, you're, you're going to step into this really important role. Um, I think we need more youth. We need more marginalized people. And those people require convincing. And I don't think it's about pressuring people to do what's right, but it's about asking them enough times that they feel valued and they feel like they can do it. So for me, being a trans person who uh, was you know, just out and, and all of this, um, it took, I think, eight times of asking me before I decided I was going to run in the election. And those are the statistics when it comes to uh, women and marginalized groups and youth. Um, but those are the perspectives that we need. So I think People might not understand certain issues in politics, and that's okay, you can learn that. But your perspective and your lived experiences, I think, are really important. And um, I think we need more young people in politics as well, because when you're looking at issues like 
climate change. You got a 70 year old person who goes, I'm gonna be dead relatively soon. What do I care if the world gets destroyed? But you get a young person that goes, I have to live another, you know, however many decades in this world, let's you know, make my life at least decent. <laughs> And then sort of, how do you think that like your lived experience and sort of what you brought um, changed your political sort of campaign and, and what party you ran with and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, for me, because I wasn't out at the time that I started running in politics, what I was most concerned about was just not being tokenized. Um, and then I think I just went from there and, um, I chose the Green Party because I thought they had the best policy and also because they specifically sought me out um, because they wanted a trans perspective. And then the moment they said, you know, you don't have to come out, I thought, that's great. If you're not gonna make me come out to be a candidate, then I wanna run with you because the NDP and the Liberals make you come out. They wanna prove they're meeting a diversity quota and that's not what the Green Party is about. The Green Party is much more diverse than people give them credit for. Um, still not nearly diverse enough. I'm not gonna to try to make excuses for that, but um, definitely there's more unseen diversity than people realize because we don't force people to out themselves to say that we're meeting a quota. Um, and then I think, I, I'm sorry, I, I forgot the other part of the question. I mean, you pretty much answered it, but sort of yeah. just like how that was brought into your work, sort of like your lived experience. Right, right. So uh, my lived experience, I think, is not going to be the same as every trans person, but is certainly informed by being trans in the process of going through that. And I think that's informed me when it comes to medical issues because of the healthcare aspect. Um, it's informed me around what marginalized people in general deal with because I've gotten more involved in marginalized groups and intersectional adv advocacy means that you have to understand or you not necessarily even understand, but you have to accept um, other people's lived experiences. So I think um, making sure that good policy gets put forward in politics is about having all of those lived experiences come together, having all of those areas of expertise because expertise doesn't just mean you know law or you know math or you know something like that. Um, it, expertise is anything. Everyone, like we're constantly learning. Every, every single thing that we do is a learning experience. So um, I, I think that's sort of uh, the main thing is that my lived experience does not mean that I'm perfect for every aspect of politics, but I think it's an important one to have in politics. And that's, that's why I keep going with it. And when I say politics, I don't necessarily mean I'm, I'm an elected official because I've made so many changes. Um, you know, I've had the leader of, of the um, uh, eco-socialists step down because he was a transphobe and um, I, I don't need to list all of the, the, you know, getting a rainbow crosswalk by going to the media, think, things like that. You can, you can create change in your community without having to be an elected official. And I think that's what drives me, but I think that that's also what other people need to know if, if they you know, wanna pursue their passion and, and have that drive. 
Yeah. And just like on that point where you're speaking about um, like experience and how like you don't, everybody's learning every day. What have you, what do you feel has been like some of the biggest learning experiences that you've had um, in getting to your different positions? Yeah. um, I think like I talked about in 2017, I think that was the most challenging thing that I've ever been through. And I think the biggest challenges are the biggest learning experiences, the biggest failures are the biggest learning experiences. And I don't really share my failures. I often feel uh, I, I share my successes after they happen. So by the time I get there, it's a success. But it's one of the things I'm working on because for the most part, I try to keep my social media um, sort of as real as possible. I don't want to be one of those people that you look at and go, this person is amazing. Why can't I be like that? Um, I want people to realize that behind every amazing person, there's you know, a real experience that's on the negative side as well sometimes. And um, 2017, like I said, was probably the biggest learning experience because that was when I entered politics and um, I dealt with being outed. So it was very public and um, I was recovering from surgery and I just socially transitioned. There were all of these different things that were challenging me at once. And I had to figure out how to overcome all of that um, all at the same time. So that was definitely sort of the steepest learning curve that I think I've had. But like I said, everything's a learning experience and I don't learn well through school. So I've found that since I graduated from school, my learning has been so much better. And also I can focus on the things that I want to know. So um, how do I run in an election or how do I edit videos or how do I market myself? All of those kinds of things that you might learn in school, all sorts of ways of doing marketing, but not focus on the specifics of what you're doing. And I find when I'm self-taught, I'm going out and finding that information. I can teach myself more quickly, but I can also enjoy the learning experience. So I don't just tune out and sleep through a lecture. Um, so that's uh, that's part of why I just view everything in life as a learning experience, I think. Um, and sort of along those lines of kind of like going out and, and learning what's important to you, um, how have you like kept true to your values in because you've been in so many different roles and so many different positions how have you kind of kept that through it all uh i think my values are not necessarily what comes to mind first uh i do a lot of thinking and it's not even the thing that after i've done a lot of thinking i'm most pulled to Uh, i think logically about issues as much as i can and I try not to let my emotions get in the way of, of thinking logically about them. But uh, I want to do what the right thing is. I try to think of uh, where are we going to be in the future? What mistakes are we still making that we're going to have to rectify in the future? And I'm sure I'm making mistakes right now that I'm going to have to rectify in the future. But I try to do it as little as possible. I try to think ahead and, and try to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And uh, I think there's really only one principle that I stand behind um, just kind of as an overarching principle, which is be nice to people, let everyone live however they want to live. As long as you're not hurting other people, I don't think we should be interfering in other people's lives. Um, And people would argue, like you'll you'll get people that say, 
oh, well, then you're a libertarian because you, you just want everyone to live freely and do whatever they want. But I think a lot of the government policy that I've supported, because I do support uh, restrictions on what people are able to do, is around that piece of making sure that we're not harming people. And that's why I'm not a libertarian. That's why I support government policies and things like that, because I think you know our human rights code it protects people and um and that's really all i want i don't want i don't want our freedoms infringed upon but i, I don't want people getting hurt yeah for sure i totally can identify with that libertarian i often get called a libertarian for like some of my things and it's funny because when i think of it i'm like uh no i'm not a libertarian um yeah. because obviously now it's been really uh associated with a lot of things that I think are really harmful. Um, yeah, which I think yeah. is only half of libertarianism because I totally, I totally agree. Yeah. Cause like, it, at, I feel like at the heart of it, it's about like freedom, but it doesn't, a lot of the time now it gets associated with all these different <laughs> things. Um, well, I think it's yeah. the hateful individuals. They want to use libertarianism as an excuse yeah. to say free speech. We're allowed to say all these crappy things about you but we're not going to use our free speech to say good things we only want exactly. to have the right to say these bad things and then you've got the other side of libertarianism which is everyone should live freely and we should all be nice to each other and that that concept but they just where we differ is they think that if we didn't have government oversight everyone would get along like some sort of hippie commune and <laughs> you know that's i don't yeah. think that that's how the world would work. I think there are people that are always going to be bad. Not, I don't know whether they start out that way, but there's always going to be people that, that grow up in that way. And then you're, you're going to have, you know, these, um, uh, these cult like situations. And I mean, I mean, I don't know, we're obviously not doing things perfectly right now. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. for sure. I think we need some government oversight. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, so what is, or like, what, or like, who is inspiring to you? Or like, where do you find your inspiration to do the work that you're doing? Um, I think my inspiration comes from always wanting to do the right thing and always thinking about what I needed when I was growing up, not knowing about what it meant to be trans. Um, if I even just had one person explain to me that briefly, I would have understood immediately, kind of like how I was asked for my pronouns. I knew immediately that I was trans. I, I just had never, I better, never had it explained to me. So whenever I search what I was feeling, all you end up seeing is, um, you know, tranny porn. And that's, I'm like, that's not me. That, that I can't associate with that. So um, that was uh, one of the things that I think motivates me. It's why I do a lot of my videos. It's to educate people in the way that I needed that education. And it's part of the reason why I put out transition timelines, which are sort of controversial because a lot of people don't like seeing uh, pictures from before someone transitioned. They think it's sort of too intrusive and, and it's, um, but I believe that it's up to the trans person themselves to decide if they're comfortable with that or not. And I was comfortable with it so long as it was helping people in some way. And so what I did was I created a timeline which is what a lot of transition timelines are. I mean, obviously it's, it's a timeline of, of your life, but um, I've done videos where I point out different like major moments in my life that got me to where I am and viewed that as a transition, but also when it was earlier and 
medical transitioning was the focus, I was recording, you know, this is one month, two months, three months. These are the changes. This is the medication I was on, all of that. And it was just about helping people. And I think that's, I, I don't know why it motivates me, but my motivation, I think, is helping people. And as far as inspirations go, I think, I mean, I haven't thought about it recently, but I would say as of a few years ago, I thought about it and it was Laura Jane Grace because she really helped me through the early stages of my transition. I think it was the combination of her being outspoken, being so well-spoken and also making music that um, I think makes you confident. So I could just drive around town blasting true trans soul rebel. And I'm like, I don't care that people might hear the lyrics and know that I'm trans. I, it just gave me the confidence to get through the early stages. And for like a younger person who wanted to build the confidence to go out, what would be sort of your advice for whatever role that they're pursuing? Yeah, uh, slowly push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, I mean, yes, theory on YouTube, but they have a saying, seek discomfort. And I can't really think of a better saying for, for the way I approach life. Uh, don't put yourself in situations where you feel extremely uncomfortable. That's not what I'm saying, or, or dangerous or um, you know, anything like that. But slowly push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, I do that sometimes on social media where I'll go, I have an issue with my body. So let me write all the issues I have with my body and strip down to my underwear and take a picture of myself. And that, I was so uncomfortable doing that, but I put it online and uh, now I wouldn't be as, as uncomfortable with something like that. And I think that helps people. Um, putting myself out on, on social media uh, or in videos with something. If you look at my videos from the 2017 election, you look at the videos now, you see this progression of confidence. Um, and, also faking it. So as you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, it's not letting on that you're out of your comfort zone necessarily. Like even, even with work, I think people get a lot of this imposter syndrome because in some ways we are imposters. Um, we know what we're doing. We have the generals figured out. We were experts in our field, but it doesn't mean we know everything. But when you're talking to a client, you want them to think that you know everything. That's, that's what the client wants to hear, even though no one does, doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, so I think you, you tell people that you have the confidence to do this and then you do it really well, you put in the work and then you get there. So in some construction projects, for instance, I'll go, yeah, I, you know, I think I know how to do this um, or just flat out say I know how to do it because I know I have the ability to and then I'll look up a YouTube video of how to do it while I'm on site so that I I do it properly um but that I mean that's the kind of thing that um I wouldn't say completely fake it till you make it but it's a little bit of that it's a little bit of um yeah faking confidence uh until you become confident and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone until you become confident I can definitely relate to that. I've certainly done that this year with online school. Just like fake it until so like, okay, maybe we know what we're doing here. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's a lot easier when you're not in school because no one's grading you. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this one, it's a little risky. <laughs> yeah. And also like, I'm so good at self-teaching that whenever something, like if my car has a problem, I just 
figure out what it is by asking some people and then I go on YouTube and figure out how to repair it and I'm, I'm not a mechanic but it's one I'm cheap but also um, you know, I, I think you can learn anything as long as you mm-hmm. have a basic set of skills um, and the right equipment. Yeah, for sure. And then, so kind of just to like wrap up this a little bit, um, what are your like next steps or do you have any plans for like the future of your work or what, like what's going on? You've done so many things already, but um, yeah, what what, do you, what are your plans for the future? Yeah, my plans are really vague. I, to be honest, I have no clue, but, um, or, or at least I have no clue about specifics. And that's really been the case, I think, all for everything that I do. Um, it started with, uh, you know, joining the pride board and then getting uh, into the 2017 election and getting onto the CBC's political panel. And it's all of these sort of steps that you take um, that weren't intentional steps because my, I've never been all that tied to a job or, um, really loved the work that I was doing. So I, I bounced around a lot and um, just gained a lot of different skills. And because I gained a public platform, I had the ability to say, you know, these are the things that I love doing. These are the things that I want to do. Um, and when people would say, here's an opportunity to do something that you love, I would just say, okay, let's do it. And sometimes I said yes way too much and I burnt out and, and I've definitely had that happen multiple times. I've developed stress-induced vertigo and, and shingles and things like that from spending 16-hour days, seven days a week working. So it's definitely, it, it can be problematic. But now, because everything's shifted, uh, I have even less idea of what's going to come up, but I have a lot of faith that I'm going to be doing good work. So I'm working with the Rainbow Health Collective over on Vancouver Island, and we're supporting people around BC. So my job is partly community engagement, partly social media. It's getting messages out. It's being public in the way that I'm already public. And then same thing with the flag shop where I'm working right now. Um, You wouldn't think of the flag shop as being the same kind of um, social justice group as as Rainbow Health Collective uh, and doing all this kind of advocacy, but, you know, they want to pay for me to speak in schools so that I can educate people. They want to donate all sorts of pride flags and things like that to core organizations. They've got Black Lives Matter flags. Basically, they want to support every social cause possible. We're wrapping this entire building with my artwork and with a huge piece of it focused on social justice and environmental impacts. Um, so there's a lot of chance to partner with people. I've gone from, like I said, having this as side work to having it as my main work. So I have even more capacity to focus on the things that I want to do. So if I've been successful with less public exposure and with less time to commit, um, I'm just really excited for what might happen, even though I have no idea what it's going to be. And just a quick sort of, uh, you've mentioned your art a few times and sort of what role does art play in, in your life and journey and where you are now? Well, it's a huge part of what I'm doing right now. Um, actually, I've got some, I'll just show you one. I'm not gonna do a show, but this is the, the one that we're really excited about at the moment. So 
I do sort of abstract art. This is one of the least abstract ones, but I'll kind of mix them in with scenery and things like that. So that is our new trans lesbian flag. And we're printing it on flags and we're distributing it, a whole bunch of different sizes, buttons, things like that. So that's you know one of the projects we're working on that I'm really excited about, which I guess I should have mentioned in, in your last question. Um, and then we're also doing prints of a whole bunch of my drawings. And then, like I said, we're wrapping this building. So it's um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven huge windows that we're covering in artwork. So it'll get blown up. It'll be seen by tons of people driving along the street. So our goal is one, I get to promote my artwork, which is incredible because I, I try to make meaningful artwork um, in a style that I've been doing since elementary school. And it's just really relaxing for me. And the fact that I can do it for a job now, get paid to pay decently to be an artist. Like that's, that's not very common. That's super exciting for me. And um, that I think we're working on making it happen pretty soon. Um, I've just got four drawings left to color in. And yeah, so that's, that's how my art factors in. But I've been doing it for ages. Like I have a, in my living room, one of the walls is entirely covered with my art that I spent probably five years working on. And, and that was just every once in a while. So now I'm pumping out art because I'm doing one or two drawings a day. Wow, that's like super cool. And that's like a really beautiful piece as well. Like that's, that's really amazing. I'm so glad you are doing that. That sounds like super like fun. <laughs> I wish I could do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll just show you one other because I, I don't think it represents sort of the style. But, um, so this is one I just sold the original, but we're going to have prints of it and wow. one like this. So um, basically what happens is people will commission drawings sometimes and they'll just give me a theme. They'll say, this is, we want you to focus on rain. We want to see rainbows. We want to see um, trees or leaves or, um, you know, a road. We want to have records on their buildings, whatever it is. And then um, I just use, I take it wherever I want to take it. They don't get to pick too much of, of what I'm doing, but I like having constraints. So every single one of the drawings has rules it follows. Like you can't have two of the same color next to each other. Everything is sort of checkerboard style. And it's, yeah, it's just weirdly a style that's stuck with me since elementary school. And I'm just sort of experimenting with it a lot more now. Amazing. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on and talking about all the amazing work you're doing. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you coming thank on. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I didn't ramble too much for you. No, it was amazing. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. So what are you, what are you doing with all of this?